the Lord. Praise the Lord. Good job, though. Open up your Bibles with me to Zechariah chapter 11. Zechariah chapter 11. I want to welcome all of the cohorts, New Orleans and Shreveport, whoever else is joining with us. Shalom in the name of Yeshua Amarcia, our Messiah Jesus. We greet you. Hallelujah. Peace and blessing be unto you. Kyrios, grace, hallelujah. I'm just trying to impress you with some Greek and Hebrew. I really don't know any more than that. All right, Zechariah chapter 11. God gave me during our 21-day fast the mandate to preach through the whole book of Zechariah. We are now on chapter 11. All the past messages are both on our sermon player and SUM sermon player. I'm going to be... Speaking today on the subject, two shepherds, two shepherds, starting in verse 1. Open you doors, O Lebanon, so that the fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O pine tree, for the cedar has fallen. The stately trees are ruined. Wail, O oaks of Bashan, the dense forest has been cut down. Listen to the wail of the shepherds. Their rich pastures are destroyed. Listen to the roar of the lions. The lush thicket of the Jordan is ruined. Verse 4. This is what the Lord my God says. Pasture the flock marked for slaughter. This, Their buyers slaughter them and go unpunished. Those who sell them say, praise the Lord, I am rich. Their own shepherds do not spare them. For I will no longer have pity on the people of the land, declares the Lord. I will hand everyone over to his neighbor and his king. The They will oppress the land, and I will not rescue them from their hands. So I pastured the flock marked for slaughter, particularly the oppressed of the flock. Then I took two staffs and called one favor and the other one union. And I pastured the flock. In one month I got rid of the three shepherds. The flock detested me, and I grew weary of them and said, I will not be your shepherd. Let the dying die and the perish perish. Let those who are left eat one another's flesh. Then I took my staff called favor and broke it, revoking the covenant I had made with all the nations. It was revoked on that day, and so the afflicted of the flock who were watching me knew it was the word of the Lord. I told them, if you think it best, give me pay, but if not, keep it. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter the handsome price at which they priced me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Then I broke my second staff called Union, breaking the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Then the Lord said to me, Take again the equipment of a foolish shepherd, for I am going to raise up a shepherd over the land who will not care for the lost or seek the young or heal the injured or feed the healthy, but will eat the meat of the choice sheep tearing off their hooves. Woe to the worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. May his arm be completely withered, his right eye totally blinded. Everybody say two shepherds. So let me go through this with you. Um, There's three ways to look at this passage of Scripture that you're getting right here. The first way is to look at Zechariah recounting in the past the Assyrian Babylonian captivity that came upon the people of Israel. The idea would be like this. The doors of Lebanon, the trees, all of this is then besieging the city, cutting down these trees and using it to conquer the city walls. The next part of the shepherd would be God sending righteous kings to the people, but them not listening. 
and then God breaking his covenant with them, breaking the union, Assyria going into captivity, uh, rather Israel going into captivity first to Assyria, and then Judah going into captivity to Babylon, and then lastly, them not listening, and then him giving them one shepherd that will be false. Now, the reason why I don't think that that's the best way to look at it is because of that last part about the king. Um, Assyria will do well in Babylon. Captivity will do well in this passage until you get to the part where it says, Then I broke my staff called Union, breaking the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Then the Lord said, Take again the equipment of a foolish shepherd, for I'm going to raise up a shepherd over the land who will not care for the lost. Uh, After the Babylonian captivity there really never was one shepherd that misled the people. So this, I don't believe, can just fulfill the Assyrian and Babylonian captivity. The second way to look at this is to look forward in the future. So these guys have come out of captivity. They're now rebuilding the temple. That's what Zechariah is doing. If some of you are a little confused, you need to go back and listen to the messages of the other ones. But he may be looking towards the future, talking about the Maccabean time period. When eventually Israel will go into war again with Syria in the different nations. But the biggest problem with that is, is all that is happening in verses 1 through 13 and 14. Meaning that there's really never a siege of Jerusalem again. After the captivity, Judah and Israel never separate again. They're always one nation. That's key. And also... This one king would have to become more of a kingdom dynasty known as the Maccabees, but yet they themselves were not wicked kings. So they wouldn't fulfill that. So how do I take this prophecy if I don't look at it as the Assyrian Babylonian captivity to the past, him recounting it, if he's not looking to the future of the Maccabees and the time period that they may be facing, I look at it as a prediction of what happens in both the Assyrian in the past, and in the future with Jesus. And I want to explain that to you. So let's look at the message now. Somebody say two shepherds. Welcome to Bible College. Amen. If you're waiting for a Jesus loves you message, new students, welcome to Bible College Chapel. Amen. Well, that was a weak amen. I said amen. So now looking at it. So what I would like to give you as the best way to look at it would be God is using the Assyrian Babylonian language to talk about what has happened to the people of Israel. He's not using a direct correlation. He's just giving a summary of the whole history of Israel. And here's how it works. There's always two shepherds. There's either God shepherding his people or it is a worthless shepherd. Now, Take, for example, what the people do when they have God as their shepherd. So the Bible says in verse 4, the Lord God says, Pastor the flock that are ready for slaughter, take care of them, because they've been abused by these false shepherds. So verse 7 says, I pastored the flock, marked for slaughter, particularly the oppressed of the flock. Think about how Jesus, through the entire Bible, has always tried to take care of his people. He takes care of the people of God. Jesus is the one who met with Abraham on the plains of Mamre before there ever was a nation of Israel. And he took care of Abraham. He led him 
to the promised land. Think about how Jesus, the angel of the Lord, showed himself to Moses in the burning bush and came to him. He always has been there as the mediator. There's only been one mediator between man and God, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. There's only been one person that has been speaking to man on behalf of God. That has been Jesus. And so he pastors them, and he always has. And how does he pastor them? Look at verse 7. He pastors the people with favor and with union, with favor and unity. And that means he blesses them. Favor just means he blesses them. He does for Israel what no one else will do for them. He takes care of them. He unifies them. He makes them strong. But now watch what happens in verse 8. After he rids them, because God always sets the leader, any leadership that comes over Israel, any leadership that was wrong, even in the sons of, um, not Abraham, the sons of Jacob. Remember when the, one of the brothers got upset because they had abused their sister and they went and take, took over the land? But then Abraham, uh, Jacob punished his sons for that. You see, God has always used a sanctifying method through his people. Even when Joseph's brother sold him into slavery, God still turned it for good and gave a, a punishment, a discipline to the brothers for doing that. So you see, in verse 8, there's always this ridding of the shepherds. Now, what is the response of the people of God back to their shepherd Jesus? How do they treat Jesus? The flock detested me. You see, if you follow all throughout the time of God dealing with man, isn't there always a detestment inside of man's heart? Think about Adam and Eve. All they have to do is hang out with God. What do they do? They detest the word of the Lord, and they break his command and eat of a tree. Think of this. God now has Cain and Abel. He's taking care of humanity. What do they do? One of them detests him and kills his brother. Think of the human history. You see, what I believe Zechariah the prophet is doing here is he's not just talking about one situation in particular. He's talking about the whole history of the human race has come down to this. Jesus is shepherding his people. He's calling people to be his own. He started with Abraham. He started with the nation of Israel. He's going to move on to the church, and I'll get there in the future. And no matter what happens, people still reject him. People still reject him, and they choose another shepherd, a worthless shepherd. They choose another way. So it says, the flock detested me, and I grew weary of them, and I said, I will not be your shepherd. Let the dying die, and the perish perish. Let those who are left eat one another's flesh. Well, did that happen in the Babylonian captivity in Assyria? Absolutely. That literally happened. That when God said, I'm going to hand you over to the nations, these guys are going to invade you, they're going to siege you, and you're going to start getting so hungry where you're going to eat your own children. But not only that, just think about in the days of Noah. Think about in the times when God dealt with the people of Noah. And the Bible says they all went after their own heart. They all did what was wicked in their own eyes and what was right in their own eyes. And God handed them over to their own wickedness. And who suffered? Their children. See, the Bible says that in Noah's day, only Noah and his six sibling, uh, relatives, rather, his children and their wives, were the only ones that were saved. So eight people all together. <clears throat> Excuse me. And what does he say to them in verse 10? Then I took my staff called favor and broke it, revoking the covenant I've made with all the nations. You see, that's why I say this is bigger than just one prediction of the of the future maybe going to Maccabees going to the past looking at Assyria what God is saying is hey I have broke my covenant with you 
Think about that. God is saying, I tried to, to, to be in a relationship with the world. I tried to come and be in a relationship with man. I tried to do it with Abraham. I tried to do it with Jacob. I tried to do it with Israel. I tried to do it with David. Remember Solomon, his son? Remember what Solomon did, went after strange and false gods? And then Solomon received a curse. And God said, only because of David will I keep my, my, my covenant with you, but you yourself will be cursed. And so really the only long-lasting covenant that has been seen throughout the entire Bible is God's covenant to David. I'm about ready to get to why that is. The Messiah has to come. But the covenant that he made with these people representing Israel and with the covenant that he made with nations, he says, I'm just going to break it because you've already broken it so many times. Now keep going. He then says, I told you if you want to pay me, you can pay me. What price do you think you owe me for doing all that I've already tried to do for you? And they say, now 30 pieces of silver. Now. Here's where I believe we fast forward to the life of Jesus. In my mind, as I have tried to see the different ways of looking at this, like I said, people try to apply this to the Babylonian captivity. There's just no way. I believe right here, Zechariah gives the picture of what this ultimately looks like. What does it ultimately look like when people reject God over and over and over again? Ultimately, what it looks like is this prophecy that is fulfilled in Matthew 27. Go to Matthew chapter 27. Ultimately, what happens? Jesus comes. Now, I just don't have enough time to explain this all, and I can see some of you are lost, and I wish I had time to give you some uh, some milk and, and cookies right now, but I'm sorry, I have no time but to go right into the stake of the word. And so for those of you who are a little confused right now, you really need to listen to this message again because it will bless you. Go to Matthew chapter 7, verse 9. If you remember the parable that Jesus said about the man, uh, the owner, who had subleased his vineyard to another, it says he sent his servants, do you remember that, to get the, the money back. And what did they do to the servants? They beat him and, and began to kill him. And what did ultimately that man say? I will send my son. They must respect my son, right? And then what do they do to the son? They kill him. So now think about what Zechariah is saying. God has dealt with people. He's come in burning bushes. He's come on the mountain. Remember when, when God was on the mountain talking to Moses? What were the people of Israel doing down below? Worshiping an idol. You see, is that not the story of humanity? Think about that. God just spared the entire world through Noah. And how does, God, uh, how does Noah repay God after the flood? He gets drunk and naked in front of his family. Do you see the frustration with the Father, with mankind, always trying to shepherd them, but they never listen to Him, and eventually says, I'm done with you. Now what happens when the Father says, I cannot deal with you anymore through this way? Jesus comes to now die for our sins. Get the understanding of this. He says, Father, I've dealt with them, I've given them your word, I've come to them in burning bushes. But now I will come and I will let them kill me and take all of their anger out on me. And by them being angry with me, by them killing me, by them slaughtering me like a sheep to slaughter, I will take their sins. I mean, now get the understanding of this. Jesus comes as the shepherd. 
And what do we do as a human race to the shepherd? We detest him. We kill him. And when it comes to Matthew 27, verse 9, Judas being asked, basically, what do you want for the, you know, the betrayal of Jesus? What does he say? 30 pieces of silver. Think of this, my friends. God of glory, the God of eternity, the great shepherd of all mankind comes. And Judas says, all that he has done for us is only worth 30 pieces of silver. That's all he's worth. That's all Jesus is worth to us. I will betray him for 30 pieces of silver. Look at Matthew 27, 9, to see the fulfillment of this. Then what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled because he talks about buying the lot of land. And Zechariah talks about the 30 pieces. That's why it just says Jeremiah there. But it says, Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used it to buy a potter's field as the Lord commanded. Think about that, my friends. Now go back to Zechariah. So what am I worth? You're only worth 30 pieces of silver, Lord, and we crucify him. That's what we did. Then, verse 14, I broke my staff called union, breaking the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Now, once again, that would fit very nicely in the Assyrian-Babylonian context because eventually they become separate as nations. Uh, Israel goes into captivity with Assyria. Judah goes into captivity of Babylon. But since this 30 pieces of silver would make no sense looking in the past, to me, looking forward at the time of Jesus, what I believe he's saying is I'm breaking the covenant, I'm breaking the union between the kings and the priests. Judah representing the priesthood. Even though they had kings, but they had Israel, and they had a worship for God. The word Judah itself means praise. And Israel representing a kingdom, representing these ten tribes. I believe what what God is saying is that I will break a covenant with Israel, and I will separate their priesthood from their kings. And from that time forward, at the time of Jesus' crucifixion, the veil rents in two. He never deals with Israel and Judah in that way again. He never deals with them that way again. Are you understanding what I'm saying? He never deals with Israel in the way of, I'm just here for the Israelites. After he comes, he says, now go into all the world. You see, for about the first hundred years, the church deals with Israel in a little bit different way. They're just preaching to them. And then after that, it just moves on past Israel into all of the nations. And what God is saying is, you Israelites, you chosen people, you had all this time to be my sheep. You had all this time to listen to me. But when I came to you, my own people, you rejected me and crucified me. Now I reject you. And if you fast forward to Romans, Paul says it's the rejection of the Israelites that allows the Gentiles to be grafted into God. But one day they will come back. One day Israel will be saved. But right now he's saying, I'm rejecting your kingdom. I'm rejecting your priesthood. All this temple sacrifice is an abomination to me. You rejected my son, and now I'm giving the gospel to the Gentiles. Even as Paul said that one time when the Jews rejected it, he said that I'm going to take it to the Gentiles. That's just the way I'm perceiving this. Verse 15. Then the Lord said to me, take again the equipment of a foolish shepherd, for I'm going to rise up a shepherd over the land who will not care for the lost or seek the young or heal the injured. 
And you know what I think this is? As you, you watch after Jesus has been betrayed, crucified, and the gospel begins to preach. Look at, look at all of the type of foolish people that rule over Israel. And if you would study the history, and if you talk to a Jew, you would say, who's been your best candidate for the Messiah in the last 2,000 years? You rejected Jesus, and you say you're waiting for another, which contradicts itself because it said Jesus had to come to the temple, which they have never had a temple, so now they're waiting to rebuild it so the Messiah can come to that temple. But anyways, so for 2,000 years, they will try to show you, and if they, if they want to be honest, the different people they have tried to say to lead Israel. And they've been a joke. The different people that the Israelites over the last 2,000 years have said was the Messiah. Matter of fact, there's this one group right now in Brooklyn. The man just died, and they thought he was the Messiah. The Jewish people literally thought this man was the Messiah, a group of them. Unbelievable. Why? Because he said there's only two shepherds. It's me or somebody else. And the somebody else is always foolish. They abuse you. They'll take from you, and they'll do no good. Are you listening to me? Now, that was the introduction from the text. How many just learned something from the text of, of, of uh, Zechariah 11? How many learned something? Amen. Now, I want to talk to you about being a shepherd that God is pleased with. Man, I don't know what just happened to my notes. Oh, here they are. I want to talk to you about being a shepherd like Jesus. That's okay. I'll grab that. Turn with me to John chapter 10, verse 10. Thank you. Are you going to be a good shepherd like Christ, or are you going to be a hireling? Hello. Now you understand the passage of of Zechariah, but let's make it applicable to your life. I want you to start in, in John chapter 10, verse 11. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 12, the hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the flock coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. The wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. My friend Jesus himself said, I'm a shepherd, I'm the only shepherd, I'm the good shepherd, but there is another type of shepherd that's a hireling. Now, my friends, you and I are called to be shepherds. I want you to see this. Turn with me here to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 25. Two shepherds. There's always been two shepherds. It's been God or somebody else. And now today... You are called to shepherd. Matter of fact, the word pastor is the word shepherd in the Greek. It means the same thing, the same exact word. When it says it in Ephesians that some are called to pastor, that word is shepherd. First Peter 2.25, For you were like sheep gone astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd, an overseer of your souls. What are elders called in the New Testament? Overseers. What does a shepherd mean in the New Testament? 
pastor. So you've returned to the pastor and elder overseer of your soul. Now go to 1 Peter 5, verse 2. Be shepherds, talking to the elders, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers. Look at the same words being used there. Shepherds and overseers. But who's it being applied to? You. Not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve. First Peter 5, 4, And when the chief shepherd appears, because he's the chief one, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. You see, my friends, there's always going to be two types of shepherds. In the church, there's going to be the type of shepherd that looks at the sheep, as Zechariah was saying, and they go, praise the Lord. Wow, we're going to get some wool from these sheep. We're going to have some lamb chops, and we're praising God. There's types of shepherds that only look for what they get out of ministry. You may see them on TV. You may have visited their church. They may come in all shapes and sizes. It could be a small church, big church. Listen to me. Good pastors and bad pastors come in all shapes and sizes and forms. Those that are pastoring for themselves don't look after the flock. They only care about themselves. I want you to see how God calls these types of shepherds. Go to Ezekiel chapter 33. Look at how he describes them in depthly. Uh, Ezekiel 34, rather. Ezekiel 33 is about the watchman. Go to Ezekiel 34. And watch what these people do and say to yourself, I will never be this type of a shepherd. You will never be a greedy shepherd. Say that with me. I will never be a greedy shepherd. You see, you have to have in your heart today, I'm not here to take from the people. I am here to give to the people. It's not what you get out of it. Because when you do that, you are the foolish shepherd that God says he will curse and judge. Now let me just pause here as well, ready to read a description of a foolish shepherd. The people that choose to stay with... See, my wife and I have asked ourselves this question. Whose fault is it? Is it the shepherd's fault or the people's fault who stay with the shepherd? Ultimately, it's the shepherd's fault, but then it's the people's fault if they stay there. Because they then are detesting a real shepherd, and they're allowing a false shepherd to stay over them. Are you getting what I'm saying? But I still have pity for the people that are in churches today that are being led astray by false shepherds because they don't know any better. But if they truly have a relationship with God as God demands them to have one, if they pray and read their Bible, their heart should open to the fact that something's not right. How did the Great Reformation come about? Martin Luther, under the shepherding of the Catholic Church, said, Hold on, guys. Something's not right here. Y'all are taking from us something that you can't have. You're telling us to do stuff. That's not right. He calls the Reformation. Not all going against authority is wrong. Don't touch the Lord's anointed. Well, what if the Pope would have said that to Martin Luther? Don't touch the Lord's anointed. Martin Luther never would have reformed. I'm telling you, some churches need a reformation. Glory to God. Just watch out how you do that. Don't tell them I told you to do that. Amen. Not in this church, praise the Lord, or in anybody's church here. But I'm just saying for those that are in a church where there's no good shepherding, they're being abused, it's their job to get out. It's their job to politely write as they're leaving to the pastor and say, hey, things aren't right. You're taking up five offerings. You don't care for the sick and the poor. You're not reaching out on the streets. All you're wanting is pastor anniversary dinners and all you're wanting is, is this and that. i got to let you know I can't be with that anymore. Somebody say, help us, Lord. 
But look at the, the, the wrong type of a shepherd. Look at how they are. Go to chapter 34. The, the whole thing is so good, but let's just go up around verse 1, and I'll read to verse 5. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. So what do they do? They only take care of themselves, number one. What don't they do, number two? They don't take care of the flock. Verse number three and number three, what else do they do? They eat the curds. Number four, they clothe themselves with the wool. And number five, they, cho- they slaughter the choice animals and they don't take care of the flock. Number six, they don't strengthen the weak. Or number seven, heal the sick. Or number eight, bind up the injured. Or number ten, they don't bring back the strays or search for the lost. And eleven, they brutally and harshly treat the sheep. Hello? There's eleven descriptions of what a bad shepherd does. They don't care for the sheep. They don't bind up the hurting. They don't look for the lost ones. They could care less. It's all about me, myself, and I. It's all about building a ministry that makes them look good. My friends, I want to warn you as you go out into ministry not to go the way of an evil shepherd. Not to become a hireling. It would be so easy for you to graduate from SUM and say, Okay, pastor, who's going to pay for me to preach now? Who's got the best deal? Where can I get the insurance package and parsonage and company car?" As a matter of fact, when I was sitting down with Chancellor Noah and the rest of the visionary leaders for SUM, we were talking about how in the 80s, all of these Bible college students were coming to go to these big churches and build mega churches. And all throughout the 90s, it was all about mega, mega, mega church. You know, you had to graduate Bible college and go work at a mega church. And it was competitive. You know, what church are you at? Well, I'm at a 2,000 member. No, I'm at a 5,000 member. And they're saying now that these graduates that are in ministry, are dropping out like flies. Just dropping out. Just not even making it. I don't even know the statistic. Chancellor knows that some of you might remember. But it's like a 1,000 ministers a month drop out of ministry. And it's like only 10% make it to the age of 60. So all those baby boomer pastors just dropping out, getting caught with their pants down, having homosexual affairs, getting caught stealing money on television. Why? Because ministry to them was always something that it was never supposed to be. It became an idol to them. And now God is just bringing them down, punishing them for all the wickedness they've done. And you begin to look at the sheep that are scattered because of this and all the hurt it does. And then we began to talk about the hope now for this generation. That this generation right now in 2010 are following the examples of the apostles where they say, I'll graduate and get a job as long as I'm working in a church that God has called me to. And I was sitting there talking to another church planner and he was saying the same thing. He said, my whole staff has jobs right now because we can't pay for them to be on staff. But they have degrees and they have educations and some of them could work at large churches. But they're recognizing that they got to be where God is at and not for a paycheck. And then we began to talk about that during the economy, the economic downturn, all these people who were in ministry for money began to drop out because now these churches can't pay the associate youth pastor, can't pay the children's pastor. And now they're saying to the children's pastor, hey, can you still work as a children's pastor? It's just that we don't have the money. And the ones that are of God are saying, yes, I'll stay, pastor. I'll, I'll get a job at Menards if I have to, and I'm going to be the children's pastor. 
And then I shared with them my testimony that my wife and I started in our house and that God used my wife to get a job to have insurance and I plugged away in the church. And we did that for four and a half years until finally SUM could help us with our income. And now we, uh, we can just work in the ministry. But it took us four and a half years. How many people would stick with something for four and a half years not getting paid, not receiving any benefit to themselves? You see, my friends, God is looking for shepherds that love the people. Ask yourself this question. Do I want a shepherd like Jesus? Do I want to care for the flock? Do I want to come and give to the flock? Or do I want to come and take from the flock? Go to Jude chapter 1 verse 12. Jude 1 verse 12. Come on, I want to see you guys raise up and be great shepherds. Amen. Raise up and be mighty warriors of God who will suffer for the cause of gospel. Because the Bible doesn't say that preaching the gospel makes you rich and famous. The Bible says you will suffer for preaching the gospel. All other things you get are blessings. Yes, if you get a house from the gospel, if you get land from the gospel, it's not yours anyway. So you can't take pride in it because the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. I'm reminded of this wonderful man of God. He had spent 10 years building an evangelistic ministry. He had a beautiful home. He had a beautiful car. He had beautiful furniture. He had got his kids into a good school. And you know what the Lord said to him? Give it all away and go on the foreign mission field. He said, but God, look at all you've given me here. He said, no, now give it away and go. You know, I was thinking about that as I'm preparing to go to Pakistan. You know, now I've become an SUM professor, great church, it's growing, have a beautiful house. What if God were to say to me when I'm in Pakistan, this is your new home. Give this all now to somebody else and you start right here with nothing. And then that excuse comes right up in my heart. Well, God, you wouldn't say that because you gave that to me. You wouldn't, you wouldn't take that away. You're the one that gave it. And then God showed it to me like this. And it may take just a few seconds, but let me explain it to you. See, I was a high school dropout. I was on drugs. And most importantly, I was a lost sinner on my way to hell. So if I would have died November 4th, 1995, before I got saved November 5th, I would have died and been consigned to hell for all of eternity. And within a few moments of being in that hell fire, just like the rich man in the story of Lazarus, you can bet I would have cried out, God, just give me one more chance. I, I, I don't care what you do. I'll get beheaded for you in, in, in a Muslim country. God, I'll be poor for you. God, I'll have a disease on the earth. I don't care. Just put me back on the earth and give me one more chance. Wouldn't somebody in hell just beg for one more chance? And so God shared with me, that's what you would have done. And so when I gave you eternal salvation, you got all these blessings as a result of it. I gave you an education. I gave you a house and a home, a wife and children. I gave you all of that when you were a lost sinner on your way to hell. So everything I've given you has been on loan from me to begin with because you never deserved it. And then the Lord said it to because I was taking a walk. This is exactly how he explained it to me. And then he said, now if I want to take it back, you have no right to say I've done you wrong because you're just an unprofitable servant because you would have gone to hell anyway. And the fact that I gave it to you for 14 years was a blessing because you would have begged to have it just for a moment. 
And the very fact that I gave it to you for 14 years was already a blessing. How can you now say to me, I've done you wrong? And then he brought those parables to my mind. The parable where the man comes and he works in the field. He does all that work. But at the end of the day, he serves his master before he himself eats. And the Bible says he's just an unprofitable servant. And I thought about that. It's all about God anyway. And then I began to think about the other parable, that the one man starts at the beginning of the day, and he works all day, and he gets paid, you know, $10. And the one guy just comes at the last part of the day, and he gets paid $10, too. He only works for an hour. And the one who's worked all day, he complains, and he says, why does he get that when I didn't, and I worked longer? He said, because it's mine to give at any time. And I began to think, if God gave it to me an hour, how can I complain? If God gave it to me in a year, how can I complain? Because I could have died and went to hell. You have to think of it that way, my friends. I hope that just that little testimony there has blessed you. Think of it. You would have died and gone to hell without Christ. Now you've been chosen for His gospel. How could you complain if He asked you to be a martyr? Well, I'll leave my wife and kids. Who's going to take care? He's the one that gave you your wife and kids. How can you now say your wife and kids are an excuse to go overseas and preach the gospel? Well, I have an education now. I deserve so much more out of life. How can you say that to God? You wouldn't have had anything if He wouldn't have saved you. And if you look at all of your testimonies, where would you be right now without the gospel? You would be as blind and as lost as them. And if you died, you would perish forever. So you and I have to have a grateful heart and just say, we're here to serve. If you want me to shepherd in this church and be a doorkeeper here for the rest of my life, God, I'll do it. God, if you want me to work in Ohio Park, I'll do it. You see, ministry is not about us making demands to God saying, I deserve this. Look at Jude one twelve talking about these types of shepherds. These men are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest, slightest qualm. Shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. My friends, not only are you dead spiritually, but you will be damned eternally. I have a heart for false shepherds, my friends. God says they are clouds without rain. They may give people a sense of hope because they preach the word of God. They may make people feel emotionally better. But when God sees their heart, he sees them as this description, a cloud without rain. They're really not refreshing the people. They have no fruit, and they're twice dead. And how does he see them? As a blemish. You see, I'm not here to name names and say this type of a televangelist is a false shepherd. See, that's not the point. The point is, who are you going to be? This is not, well, we're so much better than this guy because this guy does this. And did you read what he wrote? Or did you see him on TV? No, we're not here to puff ourselves up and try to go out there and put others down. No, what I'm saying to you today is I'm warning each and every one of you, don't be a false shepherd, but be a shepherd like God. Because there's only two shepherds in the church. It's God or somebody else. Revelation 7.17 says this. Turn there. Revelation 7.17. In closing, bless the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Help us, Lord, to be the shepherds you've called us to be. Revelation 7.17. Listen to this. 
For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will wipe, uh, he will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. You see, my friends, all of ministry is just a loan from God. We don't own the people. The people are God's. Do you understand that? One day, we give them all back to Him. There will be no big eyes and little U's in heaven. I will not be standing next to the shepherd, Jesus, with my arm around Him going, yeah, those are mine right there, Jesus. Yeah, those are mine. I will, I will be next to you on my face before Him. Billy Graham will not be up there going, hey, oh, this section over there, hey, make some noise. Jesus, I brought those guys right there. Aren't they cool right over there? Billy Graham will be on his face before God. John Wesley will be on his face before God. Do you understand? They will all be on their, the Apostle Paul will be on his face before God. I remember when a man told me this. I was out uh, at a youth camp. And I was kissing on this girl at a youth camp, just making out with her like I was a movie star, like I was a soap opera star. And I remember him telling me, dude, I don't feel right about, like this was his only way of rebuking me. They were such a liberal group of people, by the way. This was like his only way of rebuking me. Dude, I don't think that's right. But I'm not going to tell you not to do it. So I was like, okay, dude, you don't feel it's right. I feel it's right. And then when I was done making out with this girl like I was on a soap opera, he said to me, you better be careful about what you're doing because you may be kissing somebody else's wife. Because if that's not your wife, you are kissing on somebody else's wife. Oh, but we don't look at it that way, do we? Well, they're not married yet. Oh, it's just anybody's ball game. And even if we're not going to get married, that's okay as long as I don't sin sexually. That's all cool with God. No, it's not. No, it's not. Now, think of it the same way. Who is the bride of Christ? You and I? Some pastors are molesting the bride of Christ. Not understanding. That's somebody else's bride. Come on. That's somebody else's bride. You better watch how you're touching the bride. You better watch how you're taking from the bride. You better watch how you're treating the bride. You go here and do this. Better watch how you're bossing around the bride. That's somebody else's wife. That's somebody else's wife. They are God's people. That's why at the end of the day, and you can hear my confession of frustration from yesterday's sermon, sometimes we as shepherds do feel like shaving all your wool off and having a new jacket. Sometimes we do like feasting on your lamb chops because you give us a hard time. Yes, sometimes shepherds feel that way with the people. But my friends, we better repent before God because that heart is not a good heart. That's an evil heart. Because at the end of the day, we as shepherds have to say, we're just here to serve. We're just here to serve. My friends, what type of shepherd are you going to be? What type of person are you going to be in the ministry? Are you going to come to a youth group and say, okay, now, how can I make myself the Ryan Seacrest of this youth group? You know, I love the way Chancellor No used to tell us. He said, some of you guys haven't got that stardom thing out of you, that reality TV thing. Some of you all still just want to be famous, and you're going to try to use the church to do it. You know, you're going to use that youth group. Maybe some of you were nerdy in school, and now you're going to use your ministry to become popular. You're going to grow a little clique around you, and you're going to use it to feed your insecurity because you never had that type of attention in this world. Now you're going to use it in the church. You better be careful. 
Some of you, you're going to get high on power. You're going to want people to call you by a title. You're going to want them to make sure they pronounce your name right. You're going to want to make sure that in the room, everybody knows at all times that you're in charge. You better be careful. Because you start lording it over people, God says he'll judge you. You start neglecting the people, God will judge you. You start taking what people do personally. You know, so often in this church, people will attack us as leaders. Some people will attack me. And it's so easy for me to take it personally. I just want to respond as they're responding to me. I want to put their name all over Facebook. Amen. I want to write a letter and put it out for everybody else to read. But God says, don't do that. And you know the way I look at it? God shows me another little way of looking at it. That I was from Fort Wayne, Indiana. That I have been sent here to preach. And the only reason why I know so-and-so is because I'm here on a gospel mission. This is not personal. If it would have been personal, I would have been in my hometown. My friends, you're looking at a missionary. That's who I am. I'm a missionary to Chicago. I'm not born and raised on these streets. That's one way God showed me to look at it. Another way you can look at it is when you showed up to the youth group, it didn't matter if the starting, starting quarterback was there or if the nerdy kid was there. You came to make disciples. And if they all leave you, you're still doing what God says. Keep making disciples. So often I see pastors get discouraged because the cool group leaves their church. Pastor Grogan was here, confessed that 300 people left this church. Sometimes you can get so consumed with who's leaving your church. My friends, you got to serve God first. Think of ministry like a bus. This bus will come up and down Diversity Avenue all day long. Guess what happens? People get on that bus. People get off that bus. People will come into your ministry. People will come out of your ministry. You know what you got to do? It's just forgive them and move on. That's if they hurt you and offend you. FEMO. Everybody write it down. F-E-M-O. Forgive them and move on. People get on the bus. They act crazy and nasty on the bus. But what do they eventually do? They eventually get off that bus. What do you do? You forgive them and move on. What about if uh, they come and they leave on good terms? Pathemo. Pray for them and move on. <laughs> Put a P before the Thebo. Pray for them and move on. What if they don't like you, want nothing to do with you, and they're going to tell everybody about you? Forgive them and move on. Then forget them and move on. Don't think about, oh, well, so-and-so. I'm telling you, friends. I, man, just remember this message. I'm telling you. You will be in ministry one day, and you're going to have this star. Some of you are already there. And you will have this star person, and you will say, me and you together, we're going to take the world. And they will betray you. They will trade you in for 30 pieces of silver like they did for Jesus. And you're going to sit down with your hands in, uh, your head in your hands crying, saying, I feel like quitting. And you even need to remind yourself, I was here before they came. I'll be here after they leave. I'm here to serve God. I'm not a shepherd to take from them. I'm a shepherd to give to them. And I'll give to the next one that walks in the door. You've got to make a determination that your ministry is first unto God. Because you're a shepherd like Him. I love it when people talk about success in ministry. I'm excited about success in ministry. But according to everybody's definition of success, Jesus and the prophets were failures. Jesus and the prophets were failures, according to John Maxwell and all of the success books. I'm so glad that they help us be successful because we should be successful. But if you just waited on this, did you win friends, influence people, and grow the organization? No. Jesus lost the organization. The people of Israel rejected him. That is like everybody in Toyota coming to the CEO going, we're going to kill you. 
We don't want you to be our president anymore. The whole nation rejected him. Jeremiah, how many people got saved with Jeremiah? How many people got saved with Ezekiel? I mean, you could probably count them on your hands. Noah, how good of a preacher of righteousness was he? How good was he? Only one his family. Imagine your church just being your family. Well, thank you, Lord. But maybe God said it's just for you and your family to get out of hell and go to heaven. I'm not saying that's an excuse to say small and stay busted and disgusted and say, well, I'm just a failure like the disciples. No, because ultimately it did turn for God's good. But I'm just saying you have got to get it out of your mind that you becoming a pastor is now going to make you some superstar on TVN and they're going to interview you for Charismatic, Charisma, Charisma Magazine and Christianity Today. What if they never know your name? Man, I'm telling you, my friends, we're going to get to heaven and Billy Graham is going to be at the back of the line. You're going to meet people in Indonesia, no names, faceless, people you never heard of that God's going to say, boy, they tore it up. They tore it up. Let me show you this. I'm telling you, friends, the ones that you and I think that are just going to be so up there. I'm telling you, God is going to show us who was doing stuff behind the scenes that nobody knew about. Nobody knew about the people in China. Are you telling? Come on, think about it. Think about it. Do you think, Stephen, the guy who only had a one-day ministry, do you think Stephen is going to get less than some pastor today that has 20,000 members? Are you kidding me? That pastor with 20,000 members is going to wait in line as Stephen gets all of his crowns and jewels and all of that. Because God doesn't judge the way we judge, my friends. God's not going to look at you and say, oh, well, you weren't the next Catherine Kuhlman, so you weren't a good shepherd. Oh, you weren't, you know, like Billy Graham as an evangelist, so you weren't a very good evangelist. My friend, there's, that's only a portion of the body. There's like one billion Christians on this planet, and probably at the what? The most 10,000 would be recognizable? Maybe 10,000? You're talking about 999 million others out there are serving God. Don't tell me the guy who just got on TV and has given you seven steps of success is the only one getting blessed in heaven. I'm telling you, there's going to be a nameless, faceless generation upon this earth that brings revival, and nobody's going to know what they're doing until we get to glory and the whole story is told. It's just like this church right here. People drive by. They don't have any idea churches are being planted around the world because they want to judge it on the exterior of a church storefront like everybody else's church store. They don't know what we're doing. They don't have any idea. People want to judge you. They don't know what you're doing, but God does. Would you stand with me today, please? Wrapping up the message. In conclusion, Lilani, would you come? Zechariah chapter 11 gave you a prophetic word. I would sum up that prophetic word as two shepherds. How do I describe the timeline? I describe the timeline very simple. God is using the language of the captivities to sum up all the history of Israel and mankind and how they've treated God. How they reject God as a shepherd, but they go after false shepherds. At the climax, he says that he comes down to shepherd them, but they betray him for 30 pieces of silver. We know that that's Jesus. And then he says, I reject them, and I hand them over to a false shepherd. And who do I believe that is? The nation of Israel, until they accept the Messiah, 
They're going to be under false leadership. And anybody today who comes under a false shepherd in the Christian church instead of being with those that truly love and care for them. That's the summary of Zechariah 11. Now what is the application to you today? You have a choice to be a bad shepherd, a shepherd that Ezekiel 34 says you look only for yourself, you take wool from the lamb, you eat their curds, you don't heal them, you don't go after them, you don't help them, or you're going to be a shepherd like Jesus said he was in John chapter 10 who laid down his life for the sheep. And in 1 Peter chapter 5 that says you do it not because you have to, but because you're willing and you're wanting to. And what's the conclusion? Is that one day, as Revelation says, we will all just be with one shepherd. So we better take care of these sheep right. We better treat them with respect. We better love them. And we better look at ourselves as the way they have been looked at. Meaning, I have a shepherd watching me, so I want to treat them as I want my shepherd to treat me. Does that make sense? How would I want Brother Anthony to treat me if I was in that situation? How would I want Papa Grogan to treat me? I want to treat Jerry that same way. Amen? Let's pray and ask God to make us great shepherds. Today, Lord, we heard your word. That there's two types of shepherds in this world. Two types of shepherds in your church. One is a cloud without rain, twice dead, without fruit, a blemish to your very church. And another God has the heart that you have. A heart of sacrifice. A heart of giving. Father, I pray today we will be like Jesus. The Good Shepherd. With your head bowed and eyes closed, I want to read Psalms 23, but this time I want you to look at it more than just Jesus being the great shepherd that He is. I want you to see yourself being like Jesus in Psalms 23. Putting yourself as the shepherd. This is what you're going to do for the congregation. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. So what is going to be your job? You're going to meet the needs of people until they're satisfied with God. You're going to bring them the green pastures where they can eat the Word of God. You're not going to give them filth from the TV, from the things of this world. You're going to give them the true green pasture of God. You'll study during the week. You'll fast. You'll pray so that when they come to feed, it will refresh them. You'll lead them besides quiet waters that restore their soul. You'll make sure that the rivers of living water are flowing in every one of your services. That the thirsty can come and drink. That those who are desperate, going through divorce, alcoholic, addicted, on drugs, they can come into your service because out of your innermost being are flowing those rivers. The Holy Spirit is coming from you to them and it's quenching their thirst, satisfying their soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. You will guide people in righteousness. When people come to you and they say, I'm going through a divorce, what must I do? You'll give them the right things to do. When people come to you and they say, my kids are out of control, you will guide them in the right things. You will always give godly and righteous advice and lead people in the right path. 
Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. You are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. You will walk with people through the darkest hurts of their life, the biggest pains of their life. They will say, all my friends have left me. Even people in my family have left me. But my pastor has stuck by my side. He is bringing Jesus unto me. You'll go to funerals. You'll be there when they got caught stealing and you got to show up at the jail cell and look across through the window and you'll say, man, don't fear. I'm here with you and God is with you. You'll be there with them when they make the biggest mistakes of their life. You'll be there with them when their children die of an early death and they're crying saying, how could God? How could God? You'll tell them, fear no evil. God is with you. Let His Word comfort you. You won't leave them when the going gets tough. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. That means when they're fighting a battle, you say, take a break. Now it's my turn to fight. And you'll pray for them. You'll intercede for them. You'll take up their cause so they don't feel like they're fighting it all by themselves. They're not praying alone. You're taking a hold of the altar with them. You're praying for their family. You're praying for their mother. You're giving them a rest in the spirit and letting them know you're there with them. Fighting a battle. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. You impart spiritual gifts to them. As Paul said, I long to come to you to impart spiritual gifts in the book of Romans. You will impart spiritual gifts as he did to Timothy. You will impart gifts to them. You will lay your hands on them. You will anoint them. You will pray for them when they are sick. You will see them get baptized with the Holy Ghost and fire. You will see God set their life ablaze because you're there to anoint them and to make sure their cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. You will teach them how to walk in the ways of God so that they're blessed and favored. You'll teach them to tithe. You'll teach them how to give. You'll teach them how to be good stewards with their talents. You'll teach them how to run their family, how wives to submit to their husbands and husbands to love their wives. You'll teach them how to homeschool or how to have a great family. You'll teach them how to run their business. You'll give them an advice that will favor them throughout the days of their life. They'll look back and say, thank you because of your pastoring, because of your advice, goodness and love is in my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever you will present them before God the Bible says that Paul is what's going to present his church before the Lord you will not boast you will not brag but you will present them and say Lord these are the sheep you've trusted me with I now present them to you and they will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You're bringing souls to heaven with you. You are not going alone. It's time to be a good shepherd. It's time to be a shepherd like Jesus. Just on your own right now, just start to pray and ask God to use you. Come on, Jesus, use us as good shepherds. Put her up just a little bit, please, brother. Come on, if you came here today and the church has hurt you, you need to forgive them. Come on, if you've been disappointed by them, if you've been hurt, let down by the church, come on. Come on, you can get bitter towards the church. If that's your heart today, just ask God to forgive you. Come on, Jesus. Make that your prayer today. I want to be a shepherd like Jesus. 
Come on, I want to be that good shepherd. I want to be that good leader. Raise up shepherds. Raise up good shepherds, oh God. Raise up good shepherds, oh God. Raise up good shepherds, Jesus. Come on, don't get discouraged if you have small beginnings. Come on, shepherd one sheep with everything you got. Shepherd two. It doesn't matter how many you're shepherding even right now. Come on, be faithful to God and serve those sheep. Come on. Come on, if you were in hell, wouldn't you beg God for one more chance? And if he said, I was going to make you a pastor of one person, you're going to pastor them your whole life. Wouldn't that be a testimony? Come on, who are we to demand from God? Come on, whatever ministry you're in right now, be thankful God put you there. Let's not look at ministry as stepping stones to bigger things. Well, I'm doing this until something bigger comes along. No, what if God told you to do this your whole life? What if God told me, Joe, you'll never get 100,000. That was just to encourage you every day. You're going to pastor in this storefront the rest of your life. Get used to it. Come on, who am I to say back to God? No, I can't. Jesus. Come on, let's be the best pastors of what we have right now. Yes, we should have vision for more. But let's be the best at what we have right in front of us. Jesus, I'm preaching to myself. Come on, Lord. Use us. Use us. Every SUM student listening to me now, I pray for you that you'll be the shepherd God has called you to be. Do not despise the day of small beginnings. Don't compare yourself with another. Be the shepherd God has called you to be. Be the greatest shepherd wherever you are in your ministry. Serve God and the people. Do it with joy. Even if you suffer. Even if you have to work to be there. Do it with joy. It's an honor to serve God. Jesus. And for those that do see large numbers, for those that do have large congregations, stay humble. It's always when they get big. It's the temptation of success. Once you start doing something right, you want to take the glory for yourself like Nebuchadnezzar, but God will curse you. Don't become prideful in what God gives you. Be thankful for the thousands, the millions. But stay humble. You're just an unworthy servant. You're just an unworthy servant. God gave it to you anyway. Never treat your brothers who have less than you like you're not, they're not as good. Come on. Come on, let's repent for the church today. Making pastors feel like they're not as good as big pastors. Making churches of a hundred feel less than churches of a thousand. Come on, let's repent for jealousy in the ministry today. How many of you have been jealous of another shepherd? Well, well, they get more attention than me on the microphone. Or the pastor likes them more. Or they have more people than me. Come on. Let's repent of jealousy today. We're all shepherds. Jesus. Jesus. Oh, Lord. Come on, I'll give you... The next five minutes right now, just to pray. Turn her up just a little bit, brother, as she just leads us in worship for the next five minutes. Come on, let's seek God together.
And then pray for your church. Pray for your leaders. And pray for the house of God to be filled with good shepherds in this nation and the nations of the world. We pray for revival. Praises and 